Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here, and welcome into another special episode of Block's Corner. I know we're all trying to get through this coronavirus pandemic the best we can. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and are well. And as we continue to stay bunkered in, I at least myself have been going back and looking at some of the past articles that I've written when the sports world was actually going on. And now that the sports world has come to this sort of screeching halt, I remembered an article that I wrote about four years ago when Mike and the Mad Dog were getting back together and they were doing a one night only event where they were getting back together to do their old show, The Mike and the Mad Dog Show. And it got me thinking that that's the perfect kind of show, perfect kind of platform, the perfect kind of camaraderie that they had for a time like this. So I went back and I was reading my article that I wrote for Vice. It just seemed to resonate now. So I got the idea to make it into an audio article. So if you have about 20 minutes to kill, I now bring to you the audio version of my article about Mike and the Mad Dog. So without further ado... I will play that, and I hope you enjoy. How they became Mike and the Mad Dog, an oral history. From 1989 to 2008, Mike Francesa and Chris Russo dominated the New York sports talk radio scene. They are reuniting for one night to benefit the Garden of Dreams Foundation we tell the story of how the duo came to be. Mike Francesa and Christopher Mad Dog Russo of the now defunct but historic Mike and the Mad Dog radio program will reunite on March 30 at Radio City Music Hall for a one-night-only edition of their old show to benefit the Garden of Dreams Foundation, a charitable organization of MSG. Separated in 2008 after dominating the New York market for almost two decades, They spent roughly 27,000 hours together. The duo, according to Francesa, have already raised more than $1 million for Garden of Dreams because of the event, a testament to their enduring popularity. Relatively unknown in 1989, the two radio personalities forcibly lodged themselves in the New York sports fans' consciousness, as only two boys from Long Island could. Francesa, with an encyclopedic knowledge of sports and a baritone Long Island dialect, and Russo, a raspy and excitable fast-talking sports fanatic, unkempt in appearance and sometimes behavior, would appear on the radio dial every weekday at 1.04 p.m. And nobody before or since could kick off a show like Russo, physically coiling his body just like Louis Tiant used to do on the mound before hurling a pitch, Russo would yell into the microphone. and New Yorkers ate it up for 19 years. They invaded car radios, homes, and workplaces with reckless abandon. They interviewed players and coaches. They prophesied. They took calls from fans. The program oozed a two-guys-walk-into-a-bar format. Sports talk radio would never be the same again. It's widely considered that Francesa and Russo are the most successful team in sports radio history. But who exactly were Mike and Chris before that? And how did their paths intertwine? Well, that story is as different as it is untold, until now. Mark Mason, former WFAN program director, Mike and the Mad Dog architect, current vice president of digital media for CBS Radio New York, nicknamed, quote, Gumby by Don Imus. Mike was the guy you hear a 
couple of bar stools down, and you go, holy crap. He had a commanding voice and a New York accent. I thought, okay, we have the makings here of something. I have no idea what it is, but this guy, he's a player. He's a player. I was really in awe of his knowledge and his accent and his voice. This is a guy who, who knows as much as anybody, more than anybody I've ever met. There are guys that earn stuff and there are guys that, there are guys that don't earn stuff. This is a guy that earned everything he's come to have, everything he's come to be. Chris, in his own way, in a different way, accomplished something that he never should have accomplished on the surface. Thinking back to it now, it's like, what the hell's going on here? And I thought, how did this guy get on the radio? His diction's <laughs> terrible. He doesn't exactly have a speech impediment, but it's hard for him to put two sentences together. But I was fascinated and I listened and I thought, this is long before I had any idea that I was going to wind up at WFAN. And I thought, holy cow, put this guy on here. And I don't really remember who that was, but that was my first exposure to, to Chris. In WFAN's inaugural year, 1987, moderators Greg Gumbel, Jim Lampley, and Pete Franklin had been tasked with giving the first ever 24-hour sports radio station a concept that most industry types shunned, instant credibility. The biggest problem was that they didn't resemble your typical New Yorker. They didn't sound like a fan. WFAN needed personalities that were relatable to the average fan. They needed actual sports fans. I think in a lot of ways, sports was like my big brother. <laughs> because uh, I, you know, I was the only child when I was six, seven, five. I was looking for an outlet because I didn't have a sibling. And maybe sports was it. I think probably that's got something to do with why I got attached to it. And since I was a little kid, so I mean, I was always in the sports and in my whole life. Okay. I really don't have any, I don't have any moment or any genesis to it. You know, I went to a regular pass like every other kid. I played ball like every other kid. Uh, I 
And my first initial thought was to be a play-by-play announcer. Knicks, baseball, what have you. It only became a happenstance that I fell into talk radio. 87. He arrived in New York in March of 1987 to work at WMCA. He left WMCA after only one year to join WFAN. In September 1989, he was asked to partner with Francesa, who had his own unique path to radio. I interned for the uh, New York Tech for a couple of years. You had to pick your internships, and you know, you, you, with what kind of tour I got the New York Tech. Uh, I became fairly close with Billie Jean King and her husband. They wanted to hire me full time. I had no interest. I told them I had no interest in tennis. Uh, you know, I, I, no, I did. I did the tennis for two years. Uh, I Martina Navis over up at the airport when she was on the Cleveland team. I picked the Ron Gulagong up at the airport when I was a kid. Uh, I tennis the buddies. I took General Manager's car and picked them up at the airport. Um, Stuff like that. I spent time with Billy Jean King, who I had a great deal of respect for. Um, and, uh, you know, I used to talk sports with her, and she had a great sports mind. Um, uh, I had no interest in tennis, though. I wanted to, you know, to know as much more in general sports. And, you know, uh, her dream was that we would talk about team tennis like we talk about on the sports. I never thought it was possible, though. I never really believed in it. I never was part of soccer. I never was part of soccer. I never believed soccer would take a grip on this country, even when the Cosmos were around when we were young. I've always been a Nuston Wolves guy, baseball, basketball, football. I had a GM in Orlando. After my original GM uh, left and passed away, I have who hired me originally, Bob Polanski tried to refine me. And, you know, one of the ways he tried to do it was, and the station paid for it, was to give me speech lessons. And so, I, I, you know, I don't know how long it was over a period of time, but probably, uh, I was probably about twice a week for, I'd say at least three, four months, I would go to Orange County Hospital to go see a speech therapist. Uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time. Uh, she taught me some useful techniques. Uh, but a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had a general manager there who didn't quite understand the exactiveness 
uh, of, you know, of, my, of how to do a sports talk program. So as you saw, he was a little different. Now, I think he meant well. Now, he eventually took me off the air and put somebody else on, which was not a sports person, a non-sports person. So, I mean, he didn't do a good job from that perspective. Never fired me, but he made a change at uh, drive time on Monday to Friday and put me on, put somebody else on. But, um, in essence, he did try to change my personality a little bit. So I was very grateful when I was able to get a job at WMCA, which was in the winter of 87. Uh, I have done a lot of college sports because that was my entree into CBS. So I did a lot of work and became someone who uh, had a, a big reputation in college basketball, college football, a lot of time in that. And that was a good, very good uh, foundation for me. I've always been involved in the NFL for 45 years. And the other sports, you know, based on when I was in and out of them. I mean, I did NBA for CBS also. Uh, I didn't do baseball. I never did baseball uh, except locally. I've never done baseball nationally. I did any other sports. I did all of them for CBS, NFL, basketball, uh, college football, college basketball, NBA, NFL. I was in trouble there. Uh, he took me off the air. Gave me weekend sports talk, but it got a lot of attention in Orlando. You know, I was doing it for three years, sports talk, six to eight, Monday through Friday. It was there for that town at that time. It was a good show. People wrote about it. Columnists wrote stuff about it when they took me off the air. Fans threw me a roast when they took me off the air. Uh, they, they, they gave me a weekend spot, and obviously nobody's going to find it in the weekends. And that was probably in the spring of 86. So I, for about an eight-month eight, eight month period, I was in a very tricky spot. I had, a, I had a little level of success. I had gotten out of Jacksonville. I had a fan base. A good station, 74 a.m. And the board and the GM decided to put the host on from Miami named Beverly Smith. And she did 7 to 11. They took me off. And that was, uh, that took a, that was a big hit for me. But I had eight months to get over it. And eventually I got a job at WMCA. It was a test for me. I could have I could have quit right then, but I didn't. And I got lucky, ended up at FA, FCA. A big turning point. Because I was doing Monday through Friday. I was doing updates in the afternoon. All of a sudden I'm off the air. And I'm doing um, and I'm doing sports talk on weekend. When someone offers you an opportunity, you do it, no matter what it is. I mean, uh, the first time they asked me to go to the Final Four for CBS, I went down there. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't know where I got there, what I was going to do. I didn't even have a hotel when I got there. I slept in the first night. I slept in the lobby. I didn't even have a hotel room. So uh, they forgot they didn't get me one. So I didn't complain to anybody. I didn't say anything. I slept in the hotel in the lobby. I mean, so, I mean, that's the way it goes. I mean, you know, you just rough it. You can't do what you get by the way you have to get by. So, you know, uh, you know, people look at now and say, oh, yeah, you're spoiled. You have this, you have that. I laugh because I remember when I did my first job at CBS was going to be one month long. That was it. One month. In 1980, 1981. That's how long I had to prove myself. They were hiring me for basically a month. And after that, I wound up getting a job. They created a full-time position for me. I mean, so basically that's the way it works. I mean, no one's going to 
tell you that you know, you're not guaranteed anything. You know, you turn it into something, and that's you know that's the bottom line. All of this is before Mike and Amanda. Do I do of them? I, I mean, I, we had run into each other. Um, I knew he was very encyclopedic. I knew he knew a lot about sports, but I. I I didn't know a lot about, I didn't know that much about him. So it's not a situation where I had a book on Mike. Uh, this is, you're talking about the summer now. You're talking about spring, summer of 89. I had gotten FAN in 88, so I was only there for five, six months. So I didn't know a lot about him. I knew of him because he did IMUS, I was doing some IMUS. I knew he traveled with CBS, I knew he was there. But as far as I knew he was knowledgeable. That's what I knew about Mike, more than anything else. But I didn't know, I mean, it was like I socialized. Hello, how are you? We talked, but I didn't, I didn't know him that well. Meanwhile, Francesa, along with his CBS duties, had been co-authoring a football book with the author Pete Axelm called Inside Football. Axelm would write about the NFL and Francesa would write about college football. It usually fell on Francesa to promote the book by doing radio interviews. I couldn't get Pete to do that many interviews, so I had to do a lot of the interviews. So, um, first time I did a show, then I went in the studio. I showed up, the producer said to me, uh, you know, where are your notes? We're going to ask you questions. I said, I don't need any notes. So I sat down there, they were like, me, they didn't have any notes. I was like, what do I need notes for? So I sat down and I said, if I don't have the answers, you know what, I shouldn't be here. When I got up and walked out, the producer said to me, you know, uh, you're really good at this. And I said to the guy, I'm better than the guy you got in there right now. I can tell you that right now. So, uh, and that was typical me to say something like that. But I did say it to him, fast forward that to what I'm playing with, uh, Brent Musburger. And I was looking through something and I said, well, they're going to start this, uh, sports talk station in New York. All sports. And he goes, wow, you know, what are we talking about? And he goes, you know, you, you would be great doing one of those shows. I think you're made to do one of those shows. And I said, yeah, I never really thought about doing one of those shows. You know, I, you know, I got a good job, I got this thing. He goes, I'm telling you, you can do one of those shows that could lead to anything. So the guy who actually put it in my ear to do that was actually my Mossberger. Both Francesca's and Russo's paths eventually converged at WFAN. And notwithstanding the help and guidance each received along the way, the most influential person for their future success together was Imus. Nothing happened with Imus by accident. He knew he was masterful that way. Mike and Chris may well have excelled, but he propelled them in the demographic. He was endorsed by a guy that everybody my age really thought at the time was a, you know, big name. It's Imus. But it was, quote, Gumby's decision, one that his career reputation was staked upon, to make the widely unpopular choice to replace veteran Pete Franklin with the two young upstarts, ignoring Francesca's and Russo's initial defiance about doing a show together. As Mason's memory serves him, the duo just needed to get past the idea that teaming up did not mean that they'd be hitching their wagon to one another. And now, who knows where they would be without one another? There were bumps along the way, but the Mike and the Mad Dog show personified sports talk radio and defined a genre. Steve the Schmoozer Summers, a WFAN original talk show host and likely the first radio star that the station ever had. By far and away, in my lifetime, there were the two best radio hosts. 
Well, that was the entire audio article as told by everybody who contributed to it from Mark Mason to Christopher Mad Dog Russo to Mike Francesa and, of course, Steve Summers. They all made the article very special, and I hope you enjoyed the audio version of it. And thank you once again for tuning in. I hope everyone's getting by okay, staying safe, staying well. And until next time, this has been Benjamin Block, and you've been listening to Block's Corner.